Welcome to Glam City, everyone. Hello, uh, my name is Kira Lindsay. I'm a historian based at UTS's Australian Centre for Public History. On Glam City, we speak to the hardworking people in Australia's galleries, libraries, archives, and museums. Today we're talking with Stephen Gapps, as many of you know, he's a Sydney-based historian with interests in public history and early colonial Sydney. In 2011, Stephen won the New South Wales Premier History Award for Cabrigal to Fairfield City, a history of multicultural community. And then in 2017, he also won the State Library of New South Wales Merriweather Fellowship. So those of you who already know Stephen will know that he likes to wear a few hats, not only um, metaphorically in terms of the work that he does, but also actually today he's wearing a very fine baseball cap with um, a maritime insignia on it, which is appropriate because he is also a curator at the uh, Maritime Museum and he is currently also the president of the History Council of New South Wales, which is where I first met Stephen because I'm on the executive with him. But today we're talking to Stephen with a different cap on altogether and this is his cap as author. He's actually written four books, but we're going to talk to him today about a book that came out with New South in 2018, which is called The Sydney Wars. It's such an exciting and interesting book. I think it makes some very significant contributions in different ways that will be of great interest to you, our dear listeners, um, because it combines a sort of sub-discipline that a lot of historians haven't given a lot of attention to, and I think Stephen makes a compelling case for the fact that we do need to give more attention to military history and historical enactments, reenactments, which is part of his um, background. And um, what I love about the book is also the fact that it's rich with archival detail and analysis. It does make some important historiographical insights um, into what is a very contested and important area. But most of all, it's elegantly written and damn easy to read. It's like a warm knife through a butter. So congratulations, Stephen, on a great book. Um, And thanks for being here. Thank you. My pleasure. Could you start by giving us a little bit of an overview, please, about the time, the place and the focus of your book and then tell us why you wanted to write this. What excited you? Mm -hmm. So... I mean, essentially the title is The Sydney Wars, uh, Conflict in the Early Colony, so 1788 to 1817. That's the time period I I chose Um, because it's a period that hasn't been united, I guess, um, by historians. Uh, There's a lot of different descriptions of the warfare that occurred across the Sydney region um, in terms of Pemway's War, the Hawkesbury Wars, the Mays Wars, um, you know, discrete conflicts. But I suppose what I've done is think about this more strategically as a campaign of resistance and occupation across what is a, an obvious geographical area, the Cumberland Plain, uh, surrounded by the fringes of the, the, the mountains around Sydney. So it was, um, it was something that struck me a few years ago that this, these, in one sense, these small wars, as the British called the, the conflicts at the time, small wars, the little conflicts at the edge of empire, not these big historical battles. Um, these small wars, in, even in, not outside Australia as well, in other parts of the empire, were never really um, studied by military historians. They were minor skirmishes, minor campaigns. And I think that is a disservice 
to definitely to the Australian Frontier Wars um, because if in, in one sense, I, if you think about the scale of conflict, and we're talking. Um, a high percentage of people involved in that conflict. When you think about the numbers of people in the early colony at that time, you, you know, in 1788, you've got um, just over a thousand Europeans, and we don't know exactly, you know, several thousand Sydney people, um, which changes radically in in 1789 with the smallpox plague. So the Sydney population is decimated now. So you've and the European population only grows very very slowly. We've still only got several thousands um, a few years later. Now, if you think of the casualties and the scale of conflict inside that, not inside the empire, but inside Sydney, the colony of New South Wales, uh, you start to realise that yeah, that conflict was quite serious. It was quite a threat to the occupation of Sydney mm. um, and quite an amazing response. So that's mm. that's kind of where the where the book um, you know why it's called the Sydney Wars. It's, mm. it's it's bringing those what we've historically seen as minor conflicts together and which creates a different picture, I think, a different picture of resistance. Absolutely. You know, I found that visceral in your book and uh, I think it was probably the thing that struck me the most. I've done a little bit of research into Ireland at a comparable period and when you read those sources you really have a sense of, um, of an environment that is on the knife edge and you know, fear permeates the way that people are living their lives in what is a very contested zone and mm. I think you've created a similar sort of sense and Putting that um, filter or lens back into the way that we see that helps us to understand the way that people are um, relating to one another, the decisions that they're making, but also it kind of gives us a new way of thinking about where we are now today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess a couple of things out of that is, uh, one is that um, I think we've tended to see um, a lack of resistance um, and cultural cooperation and engagement between Sydney people and the colonisers um, without the the deep threat that firearms and control, military control from the colonisers um, was operating. And, and it's a very subtle operation. It really involves scouring the archives because when you don't have co periods of conflict, um, you, you don't look for military cons of history. But when you start to see there were stockades here, there were small detachments placed here, there were communications networks, there were defensive buildings built around the in the, in the colony itself and in, around the outskirts of Sydney that were often multi-use buildings. They were for guarding convicts, but they were also potentially defensive buildings against not just external foreign French threats, for example, but for uprisings against by convicts, but also for any resistance, which was regular and often. You know, the first period in the mid 1790s, then again around 1800, 1804 to five, and then 1814 to 16. You know, massive conflict around the outskirts and right into the incredibly in, near the centre of the, the colony in Sydney. Mm. Um, so when you pull that together, I think, um, yeah, as you said, you get a really different picture of, of, of um, a visceral situation of, 
a fear. And the other thing is that unites, I think, the whole period is the same language as used by governors, from Governor Phillip to Governor Macquarie, about striking terror into the population of Sydney. You see, and it's based upon, as you said, there's so many similarities with the repression of the Irish uh, and in the ways that this military occupation unfolds in Sydney in particular, and I think elsewhere afterwards as well. Mm. Um, these lessons were well learnt in Ireland in particular. Mm. The Marines in particular and New South Wales Corps learnt their lessons in North America, but the governor's um, methods of control, um, you know, Philip sets out on four punitive expeditions, personally leads four punitive expeditions. One of them, um, well, one he orders Tench to bring back the heads of 10 Aboriginal people in sacks. That's the humane Governor Philip. Um, and Macquarie uses the same language and, and wants and hangs two Aboriginal men, their bodies in trees and, decap- and, and their heads are taken back to England um, as displays, which again is based upon what happened in Ireland, um, displays of, of the, you know, the retribution of, of British you know, dominance. Mm. So I'm picking up things like this high sense of public display that exists in so many of these moments. And I wonder if there's something that you want to say there about um, about how perhaps reenactment has helped you think about the theatres of war and, and public displays, which we know the spectacle, but perhaps also why you've made the case for using the term Sydney Wars as opposed to the better known phrase, Frontier Wars. Mm. Look, um, yeah, that's a good question. Um, Thinking of um, a description that unites, it doesn't necessarily. I don't call. I call it the Sydney Wars because I bring those conflicts together. They are part of the first uh, frontier wars. If I, I guess, if I retitled the book one day or there's another edition, it might be something like Australia. You know, the Sydney Wars, Australia's first frontier war, okay. or yeah, something similar. Um, yeah. But I think it. it it obviously connects into the frontier wars. Mm. Um, I'm also a little, I've been a little bit reluctant to think, um, uh, to tie into, I mean, I still use the term frontier wars. I think it's a, it's, it's, it's obviously used, um, but I still, I do have some issues with that term. Um, I think it's something that historians Developed to describe well, to very well describe um, those conflicts that play out as the frontier expands. But on several, for several reasons, I find it problematic. In that, what I found in the Sydney Wars in particular and elsewhere is that it doesn't quite encapsulate. There's warfare inside the frontier. There's warfare at Lane Cove, you know, in 1804, which is well inside what you might call the frontier. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of instances I've been finding elsewhere in New South Wales where, and this is this is a case with all guerrilla warfare campaigns, um, it, it occurs and it has to occur inside the frontier, in the colony itself. I also find the, front, the idea of the frontier is uh, looking towards, from the centre to the periphery, to the edge of, of conflict, not 
from the heartland looking towards the mm. empire. <clears throat> so it's um, an innately so, European perspective. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, beautiful. I mean, it's, it's got a currency now and mm. that's fine. Um, but I, I think it would be an interesting... Uh, question if, you know, what if Aboriginal people were yeah. to give, decide what the name for this conflict was and it might be a very different name. Well, that was another question that I wanted to ask you. I mean, I love the way that you definitely used language. Um, you know, you made language choices throughout the book and the other was this choice to use the word Sydney people. Can you unpack that? Yeah, sure. Um, I think... Um, there's two main reasons. I think I think it gives. Firstly, well, three. I think it gives. Um, I think it gives ownership to those people to the Sydney region. It, it gives um, a sense of um, they are the Sydney people. The Europeans are from outside Sydney. There, you know, it, it gives. It, I think it does um, give an agency to to people in the Sydney region. I think also it goes. It, it, I intentionally use that word because it unites the different nations, First Nations, in that campaign as one. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of times where you cannot say it was Eora, it was Darug, it was Dirabin people mm. here, there and everywhere because unlike what we might be told at school, uh, in school history, Aboriginal people did unite right. um, and were forced, not, not just chose to unite, but were forced to unite, particularly after smallpox had decimated populations. Mm. We know that all different First Nations around Sydney were working together. And we know that in, even in 1814, Darrell and Ganagara were uniting against, in, in, a, in a combined force against the colonists, right? So I think... Um, it, it was a, it was in some ways also shorthand to say that that, that these are a united at this point against this um, threat these are a united series of First Nations which is not what we learn. You're listening to Glam City on 2SCR 107.3. To download this show, uh, head to 2SCR.com or your favourite pop cast app and look for Glam City. This show is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support of 2SER. And on this episode, we're talking to Sydney-based historian Stephen Gapps. So let's go into what I think is some of the most exciting arguments that you're making in this book. And then I thought perhaps you could give us one or two examples of how you make this case. Um, and that is that um, the Sydney people were not only strategic in their resistance, but that they were highly adaptive. And as you've just said, they also were effective in forging alliances to do so, to mount a campaign of guerrilla war resistance against European expansion. Mm-hmm. I think, um, unfortunately, it's been it's been the military historians who have looked at frontier wars um, have kind of come to an agreement that um, the guerrilla campaigns, warfare campaigns in different frontier wars, could could never be successful. Um, because, A, because they say Aboriginal people could not unite their disparate forces um, and they could not fight on... They had terrain advantage but could not fight on an equal footing against muskets. Now, I dismiss several of these these claims. 
um, did not use muskets for a start is, is incorrect. Mm. There's several instances um, of, there's way more, many inch, more instances of, of um, warriors capturing muskets, not so many of them being used. I'm not sure what the story is there, whether mm. they were um, intentionally being taken out of the firearms pool or were potentially to be used and never were able to be used. Mm. Um, but it is a strategy that's definitely being used. either way. That's it's right. a strategy. Yeah. Um, and firearms being used. I mean, there's the the, the what's effectively a massacre of Europe, uh, Europeans out at Mulgoa, mm. where um, warriors hold up ambush these these convicts who are chasing them with firearms, um, and basically tell them to drop their weapons, pick up their firearms and shoot them. Yeah, yeah. And showing a, and that's another point, is a skill and knowledge of firearms mm. from from day one. From early on. Day one. And there's, I used to read histories where people say, oh, but, you know, they didn't know how to use firearms even in 1816. Oh, I mean, come on. Mm. You know, there's reports of them speaking perfect English as well as using firearms by yeah. 1816. Um, yeah. I love the description that you draw from um, one of what contentious observations, which is um, of, I think it's a Gadical person quite early on coming up and inspecting a uh, musket and looking at the bayonet edge and giving a very distinctive hmm, mm-hmm. as if to say, okay, we need to take this seriously. Yeah. And there's a, there's a constant um, in all the diarists early early in the early period 1788 to early 1790s um, a constant fear by the colonists that the Aboriginal people would understand the musket um, and there was there was specific orders to try and not show them how the musket works because mm-hmm. they were concerned that mm. you know if they did that they would gain a, an advantage mm-hmm. um, and there was also a constant um, you know series of orders issued to to capture escaped convicts who often had firearms with them because the worst fear for particularly for Governor King Governor Hunter in that period was that escaped convicts with firearms would unite with warriors which happened on a number of occasions yep yep, yep. And so strategic, adaptive and forging alliances amongst each other, um, but also with convict groups Mm -hmm. as well. But as you say about the smallpox episode that happened um, within 18 months of European settlement in Sydney to the Gadigal people, that had that, that by reminding us about how much that decimated the population, you put contingency back into that moment and raise the question of what could have happened. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think, I mean, ordinarily in, in Napoleonic Wars mm. history or American Civil War, we, we or the First World War, we, we always include um, battle casualties and um, deaths by disease, uh, you know, related to warfare. Why don't we include the smallpox ep- epidemic in terms of the Sydney Wars? Um, mm. Then we'd have to be thinking of thousands of people as casualties in that warfare mm. you know I'm not saying it was a military um, strategy to to um, infect the population around Sydney with smallpox but it's a it's a byproduct of the occupation the military occupation of Sydney um, and it's interesting if you do factor that in you know the decimation of that warfare, mm. which which is similar where smallpox occurs in other areas outside Sydney, mm. um, but it was particularly you know mm. um, decimating in in Sydney. And had that not happened, those 
that precarious 18-month to three-year mm. period mm. could have been the end of European yep. settlement. I, I'm not into what-if history, but mm. it's kind of intriguing. Mm. And if you think, what if smallpox hadn't occurred there and then? Mm. The colony was on the edge. That's right. Major Ross wanted to go home. Mm. Um, several of the officers wanted to go home. And convicts, of course, they wanted to go home. <laughs> um, but um, there was a point where there was discussion mm. about abandoning the colony. Mm. Going to Norfolk or just... Yep. Anywhere else. Yep. But in some ways, you could say that smallpox saved the colony. Mm. Mm. Because if you look closely, particularly at Bradley's account of the... the um, I've studied that closely. I think it's the most accurate um, description of the increasing tension and conflict. There's exchange, obviously, in that early period. You know, these amazing um, Europeans are, are arriving. There's exchange. But it, it's interesting to see how over that first 12 months, conflict slowly escalates, escalates, and at a point where the colonists can't go outside without arms or soldiers, es- military escorts. Or without their red coats on. Yeah. Yeah. And then smallpox hits. Yeah. You've opened up the discussion of the sources that you used. But one of the things I also loved about your book was the way that um, the voices of Sydney people and their expressions of resistance came back in, whether it was Branch, Jack, um, or others. And I wonder if you would like to talk about finding Aboriginal voices in those archives. The kind of voices, not, and you, you need to look at in archival material. You know, the archives are so loaded, so distorted, so um, you know, um, often we've got people blatantly lying about what happened in, you know um, and that's our archival record that <laughs> comes down to us um, but considering that there's occasions where we've got a few quotes where people have you know seem to have reasonably well we, we can't tell but uh, quoted uh, Aboriginal people um, and also giving names and places as well and and when you pull those into the picture as well it starts to give a sense of the people who were there. Mm. And the intimacy of life then too, that people could have grown up with Branch Jack, known him well, mm. you know, sat down to lunch with him <laughs> one moment and then had him take the musket and yep. point it on and, them the next. We think of this, um, you know, at the time the British thought of that, that as treachery, you know, that Aboriginal people could come in to the <laughs> settlements do this to and then attack us, right? Yeah. And that was that was the the, the last straw in, mm. in treachery, you know. Mm. But it's totally understandable. And if you think about modern guerrilla warfare, that's exactly what goes on. So they're actually asked several times. The settlers mm. ask, why? Why do you keep attacking us? Mm. Why do you keep raiding our farms? Well, you know, what we give you food, you know, and they say, we'll, we'll have what we want. We'll have your we'll have your clothes, we'll have your food and, and um, you know, We'll, we'll have our river back or whatever it is. Mm. Several times, they, you know, mm. and it's obvious. Yeah, that's right. It's not just stealing because, oh, you've taken our water resources and made it impossible for us to hunt our own food. This is a statement saying, get out. Yeah, we don't yeah, want you here. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, And it's not a language. It's not a normal military language that the British can understand. And that's been one of the problems with, I think, Australian frontier wars history in general is um, – Aboriginal resistance doesn't occur in a in a language that the British understand. There's no formal declaration of war. I consider, I think of Pemway's um, 
uh, stand at Parramatta as possibly something akin to a, a more formal declaration of war. Yeah. Um, and there's a few statements like that where it's where you get a sense that these guys are actu- actually saying, uh, declaring war in effect, but the British don't understand that. So it's not, it becomes part of their language that this isn't a real war. Right. And um, and also they sort of underestimate it too. Like a couple of times when people say, we're going to kill every one of you, mm. they sort of laugh it off thinking it's a joke. So they're bewildered, they underestimate. And, you know, those energies seem to be kind of present in the way that historians have tried to understand this period ever since. So, Stephen, Sydney Wars has taken us um, up to 1817 and the Cumberland Plains. What are you going to do next? Where are you going next? Um, well, it's kind of it was kind of like Sydney Wars 1817 dot 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 because <laughs> the, even as I was writing Sydney Wars, I was seeing the connections with what's happening west of the Blue Mountains. So we all know the school mantra 1813 explorers blah blah blah. Um, but it's it's Macquarie who goes across the mountains with a military force of occupation in 1815, establishes um, the, the the town town in inverted commas of Bathurst, and that's the first military occupation um, of Wiradjuri lands west of the mountains. Now that's 1815. In 1816. There's this huge military campaign, the biggest military campaign in Sydney's history ever, um, of, of that Macquarie sends out to. And the connection that I was making was that he is sends out this massive military campaign that ends in the Appen Massacre, um, but it sweeps right across the Nepean, up from near Wiseman's Ferry, uh, down right down through Penrith, right down to the south, towards Appen, southwest of Sydney, um, in a series of detachments that is designed to wipe out all resistance in the Sydney region and particularly in the fringes because that terrain of the mountains was annoying to the colonists. It was called, one colonist called it an advantageous retreating ground. They could come and raid the farms on the edges and then they would easily escape into the mountains across the rivers. So Macquarie had to, he was military, the first military governor, first army governor and he knew that he had to secure the Cumberland Plain if he was to hold the thin red line that was now the Great Western Highway, that was the the Cox's Road across to Bathurst because Bathurst had been touted as the greatest um, boom to the colony. It was a saviour. It was the land of plenty. It was, you know, cattle and sheep and the beginnings of that that occupation of Aboriginal lands um, that just spread out from Sydney. So that connection between Sydney and Bathurst was obvious to me as I was writing and now I'm working on the first of the Wiradjuri Wars of Resistance um, and trying to bring that together, which I've also found hasn't um, been well looked at by historians. Okay. Wow. So the spread of the Sydney Wars continues. And one of the arguments that you make towards the end of your book, and I think you've got your public historian cap on here when you um, do this, is that perhaps we could start to think about how we might memorialise the Sydney Wars, um, both sides of the conflict. And uh, do you want to say something about that? Well, look... um I, you know, I, it's it's not for me. I think it's for Aboriginal people to decide um, what kind of memorialisation there is. But what annoys me, I suppose, is that we uh, invest so heavily in 
you know, our own modern warfare war memorials, um, and we don't have any, cons- mm-hmm. you know, anything remotely similar in terms of the Frontier Wars. And I think the Frontier Wars commemoration needs our serious attention. Mm. That's something to really just let resonate in the silence, I think, and to open that up for our listeners and all of us to to think more about. Um, It certainly left me thinking a lot at the end of the book about how we would do that um, so thank you and I hope that Bathurst I'm sure it will continue to to get us thinking in that space so um, thanks Stephen for writing such a terrific book and um, good luck with Bathurst the Bathurst project and now we come to the wrapping up end of the show and where we ask our guests to identify an up and coming glam event that they're thinking of attending and this is our way of sort of celebrating the fact that our hard working um, our friends in Glam are out there doing all sorts of stuff. So what are you going to do, Stephen, in the next well, month or so? In the next month, the only thing that has really grabbed my attention is, I think it's something you're involved in, Kira. Oh, okay. Um, what's it called? Is something about how, how do we create and curate on Gadigal land? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's the, um, the big... Uh, big thinking event that we're running at UTS and uh, Wesley Enoch um, and Jonathan Jones are going to be speaking at that and it's going to be chaired by Larissa Brent which is really exciting and I'm really lucky to have been invited as well but I love the the question we were sort of thinking about this at the Australian Centre of Public History earlier this year thinking what does it mean to be doing um, history on Gadigal country in fact it was also in the age of the Anthropocene to sort of think about about environmental issues as well as um, issues of country. But I love the it's and the event is on the 26th of November. There you go. There you go. There's a plug uh, at UTS. So um, please come along, everyone. It's going to be awesome. But I love this question as a kind of provocation to for all of us as people who are working wherever we are on Aboriginal country and to think, you know, what are our obligations, our opportunities, our responsibilities? What can we be more sensitive and aware to? What can Mm. we open ourselves up to? It really intrigued me because it's something I've thought about before. It's it's something that um, at the Maritime Museum we've tried to do is in terms of site acknowledgements and really embedding Indigenous history into Indigenous maritime history Mm. into the museum. But it's it's something that is... Yeah, we all make acknowledgements now, but what is it really? You know, what's what 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 more is there to do? What more is there to understand? Yeah, about particularly about um, curating mm. in in, the, in this space in Sydney yeah. on Gadigal and and Wongal and wherever around yeah. Sydney. Yeah, how can we bring it in this question into our daily practice, into our consciousness, so it permeates all of our thinking, our questioning, our curiosity, the way we collaborate as well. Yeah, I think it's critical. I mean, this is we're talking about curating on lands that were cared for for 60,000 plus years. Mm, mm. And and it's sort of like that question for me anyway opens up um, a very profound historical consciousness and um, invites some questions about deep time and that's something you've been interested in with your your curatorial hat on at the Maritime Museum, right? And I just wanted to connect how do we curate on land that was curated in a way yeah. is what I'm getting at yeah. that was not wilderness that was heavily 
curated mm-hmm. <laughs> in some ways. Mm. Um, you know, massive art galleries and whatever. Um, but yeah, a curated landscape might be something that you mm. talk about. I don't know. Indeed. <laughs> we won't say any more about that, though, because that's going to happen on the 26th of November at UTS in the evening. So um, hasn't Stephen been fantastic? Aren't we lucky to have him as a historian with all these hats on? Um, I think we can give him a huge thanks. And, um, you know, we're really lucky also to have Stephen as the president of the History Council of New South Wales. It's an exciting new era for the History Council and uh, we really look forward to uh, collaborating with our communities to um, bring that historical consciousness alive and... and, um, to ask big, curious questions about it. So thanks, Stephen, for coming along. No, thank you. And for your great work too. This brings us to a close of Glam City for today. If you'd like to hear more about us or from us, head to the 2SCR website, which is 2SCR.com. You can also search for us on your favourite podcast app. The podcast is made by the Australian Centre for Public History at UTS with the support of 2SCR 107.3. So if you want to get in touch, you can email us on glamcity at 2SCR.com. Stephen, thank you so much. And uh, I'd like to finish by acknowledging that we do create and curate uh, on Gadigal country um, and the people of the Eora Nation. And this is where 2SCR stands. And we, we really pay our respects and acknowledge that um, those legacies continue. Um, so elders past, present and emerging. <laughs>